0: If the words, it repented the Lord that he had made man, are regarded in an absolute sense, then God's omniscience would be denied, for in such a case the course followed by man must have been unforeseen by God in the day that he created him. Therefore it must be evident to every reverent soul that this language bears some other meaning." We submit that the words, It repented the Lord, is an accommodation to our finite intelligence. And in saying this, we are not seeking to escape a difficulty or cut a knot, but are advancing an interpretation which we shall seek to show is in perfect accord with the general trend of Scripture. The word of God is addressed to men, and therefore it speaks the language of men. Because we cannot rise to God's level, He in grace comes down to ours and converses with us in our own speech. The Apostle Paul tells us of how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not possible to utter. Second Corinthians 12.4 Those on earth could not understand the vernacular of heaven. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite, hence the Almighty deigns to couch His revelation in terms we may understand. It is for this reason the Bible contains many anthropomorphisms, that is, representations of God in the form of man. God is spirit, yet these scriptures speak of him as having eyes, ears, nostrils, breath, hands, etc., which is surely an accommodation of terms brought down to the level of human comprehension. Again we read in Genesis 18, 20 and 21, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now, and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is come up unto me, and if not, I will know. Now manifestly this is an anthropologism, God speaking in human language. God knew the conditions which prevailed in Sodom, and his eyes had whipped its fearful sins, yet he is pleased to use terms here that are taken from our own vocabulary. Again in Genesis 22.12 we read, And he, God, said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Here again, God is speaking in the language of men. For he knew, before he tested Abram, exactly how the patriarch would act, so too the expression of God, so often in Jeremiah. See chapter 7, verse 13 of Jeremiah, for example. Of him rising up early is manifestly an accommodation of terms. Once more, in the parable of the vineyard, Christ himself represents its owner as saying, Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. Luke 20.13 And yet it is certain that God knew perfectly well that the husbandmen of the vineyard, the Jews, would not reverence his son, but instead would despise and reject him as his own words had declared in prophecy. In the same way we understand the words of Genesis 6, 6, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth as an accommodation of terms to human comprehension. This verse does not teach that God was confronted with an unforeseen contingency, and therefore regretted that He had made man, but it expresses the abhorrence of a holy God at the awful wickedness and corruption into which man had fallen. Should there be any doubt remaining in the minds of our readers as to the legitimacy and the soundness of our interpretation, a direct appeal to Scripture should instantly and entirely remove it. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine, The strength of Israel, a divine title, will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Every good and perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, James 1.17, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Careful attention to what we have said above will throw light on numerous other passages which, if we ignore their figurative character and fail to note that God applies to Himself human modes of expression, will be obscure and perplexing. Having commented at such length upon Genesis 6, 6, there will be no need to give such a detailed exposition of other passages which belong to the same class, yet, for the benefit of those of our readers who may be anxious for us to examine several other scriptures, we turn to one or two more. One scripture which we often find cited in order to overthrow the teaching advanced in this book is our Lord's lament over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not? Matthew twenty three thirty seven. The question is asked, Do not these words show that the Savior acknowledge the defeat of His mission? That as a people the Jews resisted all His gracious overtures toward them? In replying to this question, it should be first pointed out that our Lord is here referring not so much to His own mission as He is upbraiding the Jews for having in all ages rejected His grace. This is clear from His reference to the prophets. The Old Testament bears full witness of how graciously and patiently Jehovah dealt with his people, and with what extreme obstinacy from first to last they refused to be gathered unto him, and how in the end he temporarily abandoned them to follow their own devices. Yet, as the same scriptures declare, the counsel of God was not frustrated by their wickedness, for it had been foretold, and therefore decreed by the Almighty. See, for example, First Kings 8.33. Matthew 23.37 may well be compared with Isaiah 65.2, where the Lord says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. But it may be asked, Did God seek to do that which was in opposition to His own eternal purpose? In words borrowed from Calvin, we reply, Though to our apprehension the will of God is manifold and various, yet He does not in Himself will things at variance with each other, but astonishes our faculties with His various and manifold wisdom, according to the expression of Paul, till we shall be enabled to understand that He mysteriously wills what now seems contrary to His will. As a further illustration of the same principle, we would refer the reader to Isaiah 5, 1 through 4. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Is it not plain from this language that God reckoned himself to have done enough for Israel to warrant an expectation, speaking after the manner of men, of better returns? Yet is it not equally evident when Jehovah says here, He looked that it should bring forth grapes? that he is accommodating himself to a form of finite expression, and so also when he says, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? We need to take note that in the previous enumeration of what he had done, the fencing, etc., He refers only to external privileges, means, and opportunities, which had been bestowed upon Israel, for, of course, he could even then have taken away from them their stony heart and given them a new heart, even a heart of flesh, as he will yet do, had he so pleased. Perhaps we should link up with Christ's lament over Jerusalem in Matthew 23:37, his tears over the city recorded in Luke 19:41. He beheld the city and wept over it. In the verses which immediately follow, we learn what it was that occasioned Jesus' tears, saying, "If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes." For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. It was the prospect of the fearful judgment which Christ knew was impending. But did those tears make manifest a disappointed God? Nay, verily, instead they displayed a perfect man. The man Christ Jesus was no emotionless stoic but one filled with compassion. Those tears expressed the sinless sympathies of Jesus' real and pure humanity. Had He not wept, our God had been less than human. Those tears were one of many proofs that in all things it behoved Him to be made like unto His brethren. Hebrews two seventeen. In chapter 1 we have affirmed that God is sovereign in the exercise of His love. And in saying this we are fully aware that many will strongly resent the statement and that furthermore what we have now to say will probably meet with more criticism than anything else advanced in this book. Nevertheless, we must be true to our convictions of what we believe to be the teaching of Holy Scripture, and we can only ask our readers to examine diligently in the light of God's word what we here submit to their attention. One of the most popular beliefs of the day is that God loves everybody, and the very fact that it is so popular with all classes ought to be enough to arouse the suspicions of those who are subject to the word of truth. God's love toward all his creatures is the fundamental and favorite teaching of universalists, Unitarians, theosophists, Christian scientists, spiritualists, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., no matter how a man may live, in open defiance of heaven with no concern whatever for his soul's eternal interests, still less for God's glory, dying perhaps with cursing on his lips, notwithstanding God loves him, we are told. So widely has this dogma been proclaimed, and so comforting is it to the heart which is at enmity with God, we have little hope of convincing many of their error. That God loves everybody is, we may say, quite a modern belief. The writings of the church fathers, the reformers, or the Puritans will, we believe, be searched in vain for any such concept. Perhaps the late D.L. Moody, captivated by Drummond's The Greatest Thing in the World, the book, did more than anyone else in the last century to popularize this concept. It has been customary to say that God loves the sinner, though He hates the sin. For example, Romans 5.8, addressed to saints, and the we in the passage are the same ones as those spoken of in Romans 8.29 and 30. But that is a meaningless distinction. What is there in a sinner but sin? Is it not true that his whole head is sick and his whole heart faint, and that from the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in him? Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Is it true that God loves the one who is despising and rejecting his blessed Son? God is light as well as love, and therefore his love must be a holy love to tell the Christ rejecter that God loves him is to cauterize his conscience, as well as to afford him a sense of security in his sins. The fact is that the love of God is a truth for the saints only, and to present it to the enemies of God is to take the children's bread and cast it to the dog's With the exception of John 3.16, not once in the four Gospels do we read of the Lord Jesus, the perfect teacher, telling sinners that God loved them. In the book of Acts, which records the evangelistic labors and messages of the apostles, God's love is never referred to at all. In the book of Acts, which records the evangelistic labors and messages of the apostles, God's love is never referred to at all. But, when we come to the epistles which are addressed to the saints, we have a full presentation of this precious truth, God's love for His own. Let us seek to rightly divide the word of God, and then we shall not be found taking truths which are addressed to believers and misapplying them to unbelievers, That which sinners need to have brought before them is the ineffable holiness, the exacting righteousness, the inflexible justice, and the terrible wrath of God. Risking the danger of being misunderstood, let us say, and we wish we could say it to every evangelist and preacher in the country, there is far too much presenting of Christ to sinners today by those sound in the faith, and far too little showing sinners their need of Christ. That is their absolutely ruined and lost condition, their imminent and awful danger of suffering the wrath to come, the fearful guilt resting upon them in the sight of God. To present Christ to those who have never been shown their need of Him seems to us to be guilty of casting pearls before swine. Concerning the rich young ruler, for example, of whom it is said Christ loved him, Mark 10.21, we fully believe that he was one of God's elect, and was saved sometime after his interview with our Lord. Should it be said that this is an arbitrary assumption and assertion which lacks anything in the Scriptures to substantiate it, we reply, it is written, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, and this rich young ruler certainly did come to Jesus. Compare the case of Nicodemus. He too came to Christ by night. Yet there is nothing in John 3 which intimates he was a saved man when the interview closed. Nevertheless, we know it from his later life that Nicodemus was not cast out. If it be true that God loves every member of the human family, then why did our Lord tell his disciples, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him. John fourteen twenty one twenty three. Why say he loveth me he that loveth me shall be loved of my father if the father loves everybody? The same limitation is found in Proverbs eight seventeen I love them that love me. Again we read Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, not merely the works of iniquity. Here then is a flat repudiation of the present teaching that God hates sin but loves the sinner. Scripture says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5 5. God is angry with the wicked every day. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God not shall abide, but even now abideth on him. Psalm 5.5 5. Psalm 7.11 John 3.36 Can God love the one on whom his wrath abides? Again, is it not evident that the words, The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.39, mark a limitation, both in the sphere and objects of His love? Again, is it not plain from the words, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, Romans 9.13, that God does not love everybody? Again, it is written, For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and discourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Hebrews 12.6 Does not this verse teach that God's love is restricted to the members of his own family? If he loves all men without exception, then the distinction and limitation here mentioned is quite meaningless. Finally, we would ask, Is it conceivable that God will love the damned in the lake of fire? Yet if he loves them now, he will do so then, seeing that his love knows no change, he is without variableness or shadow of turning. Turning now to John 3.16... It should be evident from the passages just quoted that this verse will not bear the construction usually put upon it. God so loved the world. Many suppose that this means the entire human race. But the entire human race includes all mankind from Adam till the close of earth's history. It reaches backward as well as forward. Consider then the history of mankind before Christ was born. Unnumbered millions lived and died before the Savior came to earth, lived here having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians chapter 2, and therefore passed out into an eternity of woe. If God loved them, where is the slightest proof thereof in Scripture, which declares, Who in time past from the Tower of Babel till after Pentecost suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, Acts fourteen sixteen. Scripture declares that even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, Romans one twenty eight. To Israel God said, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Amos three two. In view of these plain passages, who will be so foolish as to insist that God in the past loved all mankind? The same applies with equal force to the future. Read through the book of Revelation, noting especially chapters 8 to 19, where we have described the judgments which will yet be poured out from heaven on this earth. Read of the fearful woes, the frightful plagues, the vials of God's wrath, which shall be emptied on the wicked. Finally, read the twentieth chapter of Revelation, the great white throne judgment, and see if you can discover there the slightest trace of love. But the objector comes back to John 3.16 and says, World means world. True. But we have shown that the world does not mean the whole human family. The fact is that the world is used in a general way. When the brethren of Christ said, Show thyself to the world, John 7.4, did they mean show thyself to all mankind? When the Pharisees said, Behold, the world is gone after him, John twelve nineteen, did they mean all the human family were flocking after Jesus? When the apostle wrote, Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world to the Romans in Romans 1, 8, did he mean that the faith of the saints at Rome was the subject of conversation by every man, woman, and child on the earth? When Revelation 13.3 informs us that all the world wondered after the beast, are we to understand that there will be no exceptions? What of the godly Jewish remnant who will be slain in Revelation 24 rather than submit to the beast? These and other passages which might be quoted show that the term the world is often a relative rather than an absolute one. Now, the first thing to note in connection with John three sixteen is that our Lord was there speaking to Nicodemus, a man who believed that God's mercies were confined to his own nation. Christ there announced that God's love in giving his Son had a larger object in view, that it flowed beyond the boundary of Palestine, reaching out to the regions beyond. in other words, this was christ's announcement that God had a purpose of grace toward Gentiles as well as Jews. God so loved the world, then, signifies God's love, is international in its scope. But does this mean that God loves every individual among the Gentiles? Not necessarily. For as we have seen, the term world is general rather than specific, relative rather than absolute. The term world is not in itself conclusive. To ascertain who are the objects of God's love, other passages where His love is mentioned must be consulted in 2 Peter 2, 5, we read of the world of the ungodly. If then there is a world of the ungodly, there must also be a world of the godly. It is the latter who are in view in the passages we shall now briefly consider. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. John six thirty three. Now mark it well. Christ did not say, Offereth life unto the world, but giveth. What is the difference between the two terms? This, a thing which is offered may be refused, but a thing given necessarily implies its acceptance. If it is not accepted, it is not given. It is simply proffered. Here, then, is a scripture that positively states, Christ giveth life, spiritual, eternal life, unto the world. No, he does not give eternal life to the world of the ungodly, for they will not have it. They do not want it. Hence we are obliged to understand the reference in John 6.33 as being to the world of the godly, that is, to God's own people. One more. In 2 Corinthians 5.19 we read, To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. What is meant by this is clearly defined in the words immediately following, not imputing their trespasses unto them, here again, the world cannot mean the world of the ungodly, for their trespasses are imputed to them, as the judgment of the great white throne will yet show. But 2 Corinthians 5.19 plainly teaches there is a world which are reconciled, reconciled unto God because their trespasses are not reckoned to their account, having been borne by their substitute. Who then are they? Only one answer is fairly possible. The world of God's people. In like manner, the world in John 3.16 must, in the final analysis, refer to the world of God's people. Must we say, for there is no other alternative solution? It cannot mean the whole human race, for one half of the race was already in hell when Christ came to earth. It is unfair to insist that it means every human being now living, for every other passage in the New Testament where God's love is mentioned limits it to his own people. Search and see. The objects of God's love in John 3.16 are precisely the same as the object of Christ's love in John 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his time was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. We may admit that our interpretation of John 3.16 is no novel one invented by us, but one almost uniformly given by the Reformers and Puritans and many others since them. Coming now to Chapter 3, The Sovereignty of God in Salvation innumerable are the questions which might be raised here it is strange yet it is true that many who acknowledge the sovereign rule of god over material things will cavil and quibble when we insist that god is also sovereign in the spiritual realm but their quarrel is with god and not with us we have given scripture in support of everything advanced in these pages and if that will not satisfy our readers it is idle for us to seek to convince them what we write now is designed for those who do bow to the authority of Holy Writ, and for their benefit we propose to examine several other scriptures which have purposely been held over for this chapter. Perhaps the one passage which has presented the greatest difficulty to those who have seen that passage after passage in Holy Writ plainly teaches the election of a limited number unto salvation is 2 Peter three nine not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The first thing to be said upon the above passage is that, like all other scripture, 2 Peter 3.9 must be understood and interpreted in the light of its context. What we have quoted in the preceding paragraph in 2 Peter 3 9 is only part of the whole verse, and the last part of the verse at that. Surely it must be allowed by all that the first half of 2 Peter 3 9 needs to be taken into consideration? In order to establish what these words are supposed by many to mean, that is, that the words any and all are to be received without any qualification, it must be shown that the context is referring to the whole human race. If this cannot be shown, there is no premise to justify this, then the conclusion also must be unwarranted. Let us then ponder the first part of the verse. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Note promise in the singular number, not promises. What promise is in view? The promise of salvation? Where in all scripture has God ever promised to save the whole human race? Where indeed? No, the promise here referred to is not about salvation. What is it then? The context tells us. Verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? The context, then, refers to God's promise to send back His beloved Son. But many long centuries have passed, and this promise has not yet been fulfilled. True, but long as the delay may seem to us, the interval is short in the reckoning of God. As the proof of this, we are reminded, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Verse 8. In God's reckoning of time, about two days have yet passed, as it were, since He promised to send back Christ. But more, the delay in the Father sending back His beloved Son is not only due to no slackness on His part, but it is also occasioned by His long-suffering. His long-suffering to whom? The verse we are now considering tells us, but is long suffering to usward. And whom are the usward, the human race, or God's own people? In the light of the context, this is not an open question upon which each of us is free to form an opinion. The Holy Ghost has defined it. The opening verse of the chapter says, This second epistle, Beloved, I now write unto you. And again the verse immediately preceding declares, But, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Verse 8, The usward, then, are the Beloved of God. They to whom this epistle is addressed are them that have obtained, not exercised, but obtained as God's sovereign gift, like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.11 Therefore we say there is no room for a doubt, a quibble, or an argument. The usward are the elect of God. Let us now quote the verse as a whole. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Could anything be clearer? The any that God is not willing should perish are the usward to whom God is long-suffering, the beloved of the previous verses. Second Peter 3.9 means then that God will not send back His Son until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Romans 11.25 God will not send back Christ till that people whom He is now taking out of the Gentiles, Acts 15.14, are gathered in. God will not send back His only Son till the body of Christ is complete, and that will not be till the ones whom He has elected to be saved in this dispensation shall have been brought to Him. Thank God for His long-suffering to usward. Had Christ come back twenty years ago, the writer had been left behind to perish in his sins. But that could not be, so God graciously delayed the second coming, For the same reason He is still delaying His advent. His decreed purpose is that all His elect will come to repentance, and repent they shall. The present interval of grace will not end until the last of the other sheep of John 10.16 are safely folded, then Christ will return. In expounding the sovereignty of God the Spirit in salvation, we have shown that His power is irresistible that by his gracious operations upon and within them, he compels God's elect to come to Christ. The sovereignty of the Holy Spirit is set forth not only in John three eight, where we are told, The wind bloweth where it listeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit, but is affirmed in other passages as well. In 1 Corinthians 12.11 we read, but all these worketh that one and self-same spirit dividing to every man severally as he will, and again we read in acts sixteen six and seven. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the Word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the spirit suffered them not. Thus we see how the Holy Ghost interposed his imperial will in opposition to the determination of the apostles. But it is objected against the assertion that the will and power of the Holy Spirit are irresistible, that there are two passages, one in the Old Testament and the other in the New, which appear to mitigate against such a conclusion. God said of old, My spirit shall not always strive with man, Genesis 6, 3. And to the Jews, Stephen declared, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Acts 7:51 and 52. If then the Jews resisted the Holy Spirit, how can we say His power is irresistible? The answer is found in Nehemiah 9:30." Many years didst thou forbear them, and testifiest against them by thy Spirit in thy prophets, yet would they not give ear. It was the external operations of the Spirit which Israel resisted. It was the Spirit speaking by and through the prophets to which they would not give ear. It was not anything which the Holy Spirit wrought in them that they resisted, but the motives presented to them by the inspired messages, of the prophets. Perhaps it will help the reader to catch our thought better if we compare Matthew 11:20 20 through 24 Then began he, Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, etc. Our Lord here pronounces woe upon these cities for their failure to repent because of the mighty works, the miracles which he had done in their sight and not because of any internal operations of his grace the same is true of genesis 6:3 by comparing 1 peter 3:18 through 20 it will be seen that it was by and through noah that god's spirit strove with the antediluvians the distinction noted above was ably summarized by andrew fuller another writer long deceased from whom our moderns might learn much thus Quote, there are two kinds of influences by which God works on the minds of men. First, that which is common and which is affected by the ordinary use of motives presented to the mind for consideration. Secondly, that which is special and supernatural. The one contains nothing mysterious any more than the influence of our words and actions on each other. The other is such a mystery that we know nothing of it but by its effects. The former ought to be effectual, the latter is so. Unquote. The work of the Holy Ghost upon or towards men is always resisted by them. His work within is always successful. What saith the Scripture? This: He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. To Philippians one six. The next question to be considered is why preach the gospel to every creature? If God the Father has predestined only a limited number to be saved, if God the Son died to effect the salvation of only those given to Him by the Father, and if God the Spirit is seeking to quicken none save God's elect, then what is the use of giving the gospel to the world at large? And where is the propriety of telling sinners that whosoever believeth in Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life? First, it is of great importance that we should be clear upon the nature of the gospel itself. The gospel is God's good news concerning Christ and not concerning sinners. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 1 1 and 3. God would have proclaimed far and wide the amazing fact that his own blessed Son became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. A universal testimony must be borne to the matchless worth of the person and work of Christ. Note the word witness in Matthew twenty two, fourteen. The gospel is God's witness unto the perfections of his Son. Mark the words of the apostle, for we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish, 2 Corinthians 2.15. Concerning the character and contents of the gospel, the utmost confusion prevails today. The gospel is not an offer to be bandied around by evangelistic peddlers. The gospel is no mere invitation, but a proclamation, a proclamation concerning Christ. True whether men believe it or not. No man is asked to believe that Christ died for him in particular. The gospel in brief is this. Christ died for sinners. You are a sinner. Believe in Christ and you shall be saved. In the gospel, God simply announces the terms upon which men may be saved, namely repentance and faith, and indiscriminately all are commanded to fulfill them. Second, Repentance and remission of sins are to be preached in the name of the Lord Jesus unto all the nations Luke 24:47 Because God's elect are scattered abroad John 11:52 among all nations and it is by the preaching and the hearing of the gospel that they are called out of the world the gospel is the means which God uses in the saving of his own chosen ones By nature, God's elect are children of wrath, even as others. They are lost sinners needing a Savior, and apart from Christ there is no salvation for them. Hence, the gospel must be believed by them before they can rejoice in the knowledge of sins forgiven. The gospel is God's winnowing fan. It separates the chaff from the wheat and gathers the latter into his garner. Third, it is to be noted that God has other purposes in the preaching of the gospel than the salvation of his own elect. The world exists for the elect's sake, yet others have the benefit of it. So the word is preached for the elect's sake, yet others have the benefit of an external call. The sun shines, though blind men see it not. The rain falls upon rocky mountains and waste deserts, as well as on the fruitful valleys, so God also suffers the gospel to fall on the ears of the non-elect. The power of the gospel is one of God's agencies for holding in check the wickedness of the world. Many who are never saved by it are reformed, their lusts are bridled, and they are restrained from becoming worse. Moreover, the preaching of the gospel to the non-elect is made an admirable test of their characters. It exhibits the inveteracy of their sin. It demonstrates that their hearts are at enmity against God. It justifies the declaration of Christ that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John three nineteen. Finally, it is sufficient for us to know that we are bidden to preach the gospel to every creature. It is not for us to reason about the consistency between this and the fact that few are chosen. It is for us to obey. It is a simple matter to ask questions relating to the ways of God which no finite mind can fully fathom. We too might turn and remind the objector that our Lord declared, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness. Mark three twenty-eight and 29 and there can be no doubt whatever, but that certain of the Jews were guilty of this very sin, see Matthew 12:24, etc., and hence their destruction was inevitable. Yet, notwithstanding, scarcely two months later, he commanded his disciples to preach the gospel to every creature. When the objector can show us the consistency of these two things, the fact that certain of the Jews had committed the sin which there is never forgiveness, and the fact that to them the gospel was to be preached, we will undertake to furnish a more satisfactory solution than the one given above to the harmony between a universal proclamation of the gospel and a limitation of its saving power to those only that God has predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Once more, we say, it is not for us to reason about the gospel, it is our business, to preach it. When God ordered Abraham to offer up his son, his only begotten son, as a burnt offering, he might have objected that this command was inconsistent with his promise that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. But. Instead of arguing, Abraham obeyed and left God to harmonize his promise and his precept. Jeremiah might have argued that God had bade him to do that which was altogether unreasonable when he said, Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Jeremiah 7.27, but instead the prophet obeyed. Ezekiel, too, might have complained that the Lord was asking of him a hard thing, when he said, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them, for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of an hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto me, for they will not hearken unto thee. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Ezekiel 3, 4, and 7 But, O my soul, if truth so bright should dazzle and confound thy sight, yet still his written word obey, and wait the great decisive day. A quote from the hymn writer Watts. It has been well said, the gospel has lost none of its ancient power. It is as much today as when it was first preached, the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. It needs no pity, no help, and no handmaid. It can overcome all obstacles and break down all barriers. No human device need be tried to prepare the sinner to receive it. For if God has sent it, no power can hinder it. And if he has not sent the gospel, no power can make it effectual. This chapter might be extended indefinitely, but it is already too long, so a word or two more must suffice. A number of other questions will be dealt with in the pages yet to follow, and those that we fail to touch upon, the reader must take to the Lord Himself, who has said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all liberally, and upbraideth not. James one five. Chapter 12 The Value of This Doctrine 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect truly furnished unto all good works All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect throughly furnished unto all good works. Doctrine means teaching, and by it is by doctrine or teaching that the great realities of God and our relation to Him, of Christ, the Spirit, salvation, grace, glory are made known to us. It is by doctrine, through the power of the Spirit, that believers are nourished and edified, and where doctrine is neglected, growth in grace and effective witnessing for Christ necessarily cease. How sad, then, that doctrine is now decried as unpractical, when, in fact, doctrine is the very basis of the practical life. There is an inseparable connection between belief and practice, as a man thinketh in his heart so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. The relation between divine truth and Christian character is that of cause and effect. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8:32. Free from ignorance, free from prejudice, free from error, free from the wiles of Satan, free from the power of evil, and if the truth is not known, then such freedom will not be enjoyed." Observe the order of mention in the passage with which we have opened. All Scripture is profitable first for doctrine. The same order is observed throughout the epistles, particularly in the great doctrinal treatises of the Apostle Paul. Read the epistle of Romans, and it will be found that there is not a single admonition in the first five chapters. In the epistle of Ephesians, there are no exhortations till the fourth chapter is reached, the order is first doctrinal exposition and then admonition or exhortation for the regulation of the daily walk. The substitution of so-called practical preaching for the doctrinal exposition which it has supplanted is the root cause of many of the evil maladies which now afflict the church of God. The reason why there is so little depth, So little intelligence, so little grasp of the fundamental verities of Christianity is because so few believers have been established in the faith through hearing expounded and through their own personal studies of the doctrines of grace. While the soul is unestablished in the doctrine of the divine inspiration of the scriptures, their full and verbal inspiration, there can be no firm foundation for faith to rest upon. While the soul is ignorant of the doctrine of justification, there can be no real and intelligent assurance of its acceptance in the Beloved. While the soul is unacquainted with the teaching of the Word upon sanctification, it is open to receive all the crudities and errors of the perfectionists or holiness people. While the soul knows not what Scripture has to say upon the doctrine of the new birth, there can be no proper grasp of the two natures in the believer and ignorance here inevitably results in loss of peace and joy. And so we might go on right through the list of Christian doctrine. It is ignorance of doctrine that has rendered the professing church helpless to cope with the rising tide of infidelity. It is ignorance of doctrine which is mainly responsible for thousands of professing Christians being captivated by the numerous false isms of the day, it is because the time has now arrived when the bulk of our churches will not endure sound doctrine, Second Timothy 4.3, that they so readily receive false doctrines. Of course it is true that doctrine, like anything else in Scripture, may be studied from a merely cold intellectual viewpoint, and thus approached Doctrinal teaching and doctrinal study will leave the heart untouched and will naturally be dry and profitless. But doctrine properly received, doctrine studied with an exercised heart, will ever lead into a deeper knowledge of God and of the unsearchable riches of Christ. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, then, is no mere metaphysical metaphysical dogma which is devoid of practical value, but is one that is calculated to produce a powerful effect upon Christian character and the daily walk. The doctrine of God's sovereignty lies at the foundation of Christian theology, and in importance is perhaps second only to the divine inspiration of the scriptures. It is the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser planets are grouped. It is the golden intersection to which every highway of knowledge leads and from which they all radiate. It is the cord upon which all other doctrines are strung like so many pearls, holding them in place and giving them unity. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the plumb line by which every creed needs to be measured, the balance in which every human dogma must be weighed. It is designed as the sheet anchor for our souls amid the storms of life. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a divine cordial to refresh our spirits. It is designed and adapted to mold the affections of the heart and to give a right direction to conduct. It produces gratitude in prosperity and patience in adversity. It affords comfort for the presence and a sense of security respecting the unknown future. It is and does all and much more than we have just said because... It ascribes to God, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, the glory which is His due, and places the creature in His proper place before Him, the creature in the dust. We shall now consider the value of the doctrine in detail. Firstly, it deepens our veneration of the divine character. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, as it is unfolded in the Scriptures, affords an exalted view of the divine perfections, it maintains His creatorial rights. It insists that to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him 1 Corinthians 8, 6. It declares that His rights are those of the potter, who forms and fashions the clay into vessels of whatever type and for whatever use He may please. Its testimony is, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created, Revelation 4.11. It argues that none has any right to reply against God, and that the only becoming attitude for the creature to take is one of reverent submission before him. Thus, the apprehension of the absolute supremacy of God is of great practical importance, for unless we have a proper regard to His high sovereignty, He will never be honored in our thoughts of Him, nor will He have His proper place in our hearts and lives. It exhibits the inscrutableness of His wisdom. It shows that while God is immaculate in His holiness, he has permitted evil to enter his fair creation, that while he is the possessor of all power, he has allowed the devil to wage war against him for six thousand years at least, that while he is the perfect embodiment of love, he spared not his own son, that while he is the God of all grace, multitudes will be tormented forever and ever in the lake of fire, High mysteries are these. Scripture does not deny them, but acknowledges their existence. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out! Romans 11.33 It makes known the irreversibleness of His will, known unto God or all His works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15.18 From the beginning God purposed to glorify himself in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Ephesians 3.21 To this end God created the world and formed man. His all-wise plan was not defeated when man fell. For in the land slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13.8, we behold the fall anticipated. Nor will God's purpose be thwarted by the wickedness of men since the fall. For as is clear from the words of the psalmist, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Psalm 76.10 Because God is the Almighty, His will cannot be withstood His purposes originated in eternity, and are carried forward without change to eternity. They extend to all His works, and control all events. He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. That a quote from Dr. Rice. Neither man nor devil can successfully resist the Lord. Therefore it is written, The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. Psalm 99, one It magnifies His grace. Grace is the unmerited favor, and because grace is shown to the undeserving and hell-deserving to those who have no claim upon God, therefore is grace free and can be manifested toward the chief of sinners. But because grace is exercised toward those who are destitute of worthiness or merit, grace is sovereign. That is to say, God bestows grace upon whom He pleases. Divine sovereignty has ordained that some shall be cast into the lake of fire to show that all deserved such a doom. But grace comes in like the dragnet and draws out from a lost humanity a people for God's name to be throughout all eternity the monuments of His unknowable favor. Sovereign grace reveals God breaking down the opposition of the human heart, subduing the enmity of the carnal mind, and bringing us to love Him, because He first loved us. Secondly, it is the solid foundation of all true religion. This naturally follows from what we have said above under the first head. If the doctrine of divine sovereignty alone gives God His rightful place, then it is also true that it alone can supply a firm base for practical religion to build upon. There can be no progress in divine things until there is the personal recognition that God is supreme, that He is to be feared and revered, that He is to be owned and served as Lord. We read the scriptures in vain unless we come to them earnestly desiring a better knowledge of God's will for us. Any other motive is selfish and utterly inadequate and unworthy. Every prayer we send up to God is but carnal presumption unless it be offered according to His will. Anything short of this is to ask amiss that we might consume upon our own lusts, the thing requested. Every service we engage in is but a dead work unless it be done for the glory of God. Experimental religion consists mainly in the perception and performance of the divine will, performance both active and active. And passive, we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son, whose meat it ever was to do the will of the one that sent him. And the measure in which each saint is becoming conformed practically in his daily life is largely determined by his response to our Lord's word. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Thirdly, This doctrine repudiates the heresy of salvation by works. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 The way which seemeth right and which ends in death, death eternal, is salvation by human effort and merit. The belief in salvation by works is one that is common to human nature. It may not always assume the grosser form of popish penances or even of Protestant repentance, that is, sorrowing for sin, which is never the meaning of repentance in Scripture. Anything which gives man a place at all is but a variety of the same evil seed. To say, as alas, many preachers are saying, God is willing to do his part if you will do yours, is a wretched and excuseless denial of the gospel of his grace. To declare that God helps those who help themselves is to repudiate one of the most precious truths taught in the Bible and in the Bible alone, namely, that God helps those who are unable to help themselves, who have tried again and again only to fail. To say that the sinner's salvation turns upon the action of his own will is another form of the God-dishonoring dogma of salvation by human efforts. In the final analysis, any movement of the will is a work. It is something from me, something which I do. But the doctrine of God's sovereignty lays the axe at the root of this evil tree by declaring, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, Romans nine sixteen. Does someone say such a doctrine will drive sinners to despair? The reply is, Be it so, it is just such despair the writer longs to see prevail. It is not until the sinner despairs of any help from himself that he will ever fall into the arms of sovereign mercy. But if once the Holy Ghost convicts him that there is no help in himself, then he will recognize that he is lost and he will cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and such a cry will be heard. If the author may be allowed to bear personal witness, he has found during the course of his ministry that the sermons he has preached on human depravity, the sinner's helplessness to do anything himself, and the salvation of the soul turning upon the sovereign mercy of God, have been those most owned and blessed in the salvation of the lost. We repeat then, A sense of utter helplessness is the first prerequisite to any sound conversion. There is no salvation for any soul until it looks away from itself, looks to something, yea, to someone outside of itself.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.